All right, welcome back to Walk the Way. Today we are discussing, well, something of a buzzword, at least in the um, in the military community, and that's resiliency. Actually, you'll probably get a little bit of an eye roll uh, when you talk about uh, the, I guess, uh, in my world, the Air Force's key term for when they talk about uh, mental health. Um, but I think um, the, the thesis of this article from The Atlantic, which is all about trigger warnings, mental health and resiliency, is worthy of exploration when it comes to how we can think about our own ability to face the trials and, dare I say, traumas in our lives. So very lighthearted episode <laughs> of Walk the Way. Uh, I'm Riley. He's Steven. Welcome back. I'm excited to talk, man. Me too. You know, this this article, this discussion that we're going to have is it is couched in the slogan of this show that we are always saying. I want everybody to focus their minds on Qui-Gon Jan episode one. Your focus determines your reality. Uh, this this idea, this quote doesn't come from nowhere. Uh, George Lucas and you know Star Wars has always borrowed from the great works of philosophy and we're going to take you to a discussion on trigger warnings mm, uh, mm. in the academy and in the military and in our daily lives uh, and basically how it ties to some ancient philosophy uh, and also of course star wars of course that you can that you can use in your everyday life so yeah. i'm excited about this this will this will this will be fun and you know Trigger warnings are a little controversial, so you know we love, we love controversy. And in their own way, very twenty fifteen. Like I um, I, you sent me twenty thirteen to be exact. Well, yeah, I was the, say, yeah, the year the year of the trigger warning was twenty thirteen. <laughs> Technically speaking, yeah, because you sent me that we were tr discussing what we wanted to talk about, uh, and you sent me this the, this Atlantic piece, and I, I immediately was intrigued to get your your thoughts on it because it's something that's been in the lexicon now for a little while. I think there's a there's a lot of cultural. Um, there's a lot of cultural and, and, and language-based, um, I guess, controversies, battle lines. But I think something trigger warnings is actually something that's been around, and I think now pretty widely understood, at least in, as a concept in society. So, uh, what's the what's the what was your key takeaway? I guess right off the top from this piece, Stephen, that made you want to dig into a little bit more. Well, the piece is by Jill Filopovic, a feminist kind of issues writer for the blog Feministe. Uh, and the, the piece is her reckoning with that she believed very strongly and her readers did very strongly in the early 2010s uh, about the need for trigger warnings on content. So if you're, you know, a feminist website in these sites traffic and a lot of discussion about sexual violence, uh, about, um, well, really just violence, 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 right? Like the, the feminist experience and feminist ideology is, is really, uh, it is tied to talking about male violence and what goes on between the sexes. And so the whole idea was that these articles needed to have trigger warnings on them to discuss these different issues because, you know, the idea was that if someone was reading it and they were a, um, a rape or molestation victim, that the the reading of the piece would send them down a, a dark spiral. And over the course of a couple of years, Filopovic noticed that the 
demands for trigger warnings on content from her readers were getting to be so broad and so expansive uh, that people were asking for trigger warnings on articles about cats and dogs, uh, that they were asking for trigger warnings uh, to discuss, you know, experiences with bad teachers or bad bosses that weren't even related to physical or sexual trauma of any kind, but just bad experiences in general. Um, and so Filopovic looks at the broad scope of mental health in the country. And she believed that trigger warnings were going to improve mental health outcomes for young women. And her article is particularly about young women in America. Fast forward to 2023, it's never been worse. Uh, mental health rates for young women have never been so broadly bad from reported levels of anxiety uh, to self-harm to feelings of self-hatred and suicide attempts has never been worse. And so she's questioning whether or not trigger warnings helped. Uh, and in this piece laying out that she believes now with new evidence that trigger warnings uh, damage the resiliency of a generation of girls. And, you know, I've, uh, I would, of course, contend that it's damaged the resiliency of a generation of boys and girls. Uh, mm. It's just not been good. Well, you are also more um, not, not not qualified, but maybe equipped is the right word to tackle this idea from the piece uh, because you have a teenage daughter. So I think in, in some ways uh, that ex that experience makes um, something like this uh, more uh, real and raw for you. In a way, though, I think it's important. I, I think of it in terms of the context of the the whole resiliency piece, like I talked about, that, that that's the way that the, the military looks at, at mental health and the way that we approach these very touchy, very real subjects. So let me ask you, is it, was there a specific causal line drawn? Because I know you always want to be careful about something like that, because I, I think it, sometimes it's easy, especially depending on your political view. Like, uh, I remember a time where trigger warnings were the punchline of, of people who like just attributed that it's like oh mm -hmm. it's just we yeah just weakness yeah. you know the triggered just, the triggered snowflakes yeah yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> in maybe too dismissive of a way so what what's the, what's the what's the balance what's the approach in terms of the actual causality that the that the piece explores well she sort of moves on to a a conversation that she had with a instructor or, you know, a mental health, um, you know, instructor at the University of Richmond. And, you know, this person had been watching uh, a 10 to 15% increase year over year in the middle of the 2010s of young people coming to their office at Cornell, this is like in 2016, uh, seeking uh, care for, you know, trauma or for anxiety or just, you know, a, a feeling that they, you know, were under threat or harm on campus. So you have this regime change on the college campuses of we are very, very sensitive and attuned to your feelings. This is, you know, trigger warnings come about in like 2012, 2013. And then the trigger warnings aren't making people feel better. They aren't making students report less anxiety. They're reporting more right? So you have to see immediately in the coming in the years after those are instituted, that things get worse. 
we're now 10 years down the road uh, and those numbers are still through the roof. And so she starts just kind of exploring what changed in clinical psychology uh, where the idea was that trigger warnings and content flags on, on tough discussions will make you better off. And so this ends up going towards cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, which is, I mean, gosh, cognitive behavioral therapy uh, founded by Aaron Beck um, in the middle of the 20th century. It's kind of the backbone of clinical psychiatry for Mm -hmm. the past 100 years. Uh, And there's a lot to that school of thought, obviously, but it is really, really based in giving therapy to people based on the idea that their thoughts, their attitudes, their perspective changes everything about what they're experiencing. Mm. You know, an, an approach to wrongdoing with cognitive behavioral therapy. This is going to be like a bad example or whatever, but um, you know, you might walk by me on the street one day and, you know, kind of like throw side eye, right? Like we're, we're walking by each other on the sidewalk. I see side eye from you as if you hate or dislike me. Mm -hmm. And that bothers me for a couple of hours. And then I talk to my therapist about it and the therapist then instructs you to think about, have you considered mm-hmm. that they might've had something in their eye <laughs> yeah. and that they might've, and that they might've just been squinting off in a different direction? Have you considered that they were looking past you mm. at something that they saw on a store shelf? Um, I mean, this is like the difference, right? Have you considered a different possibility than everyone hates me? Because <laughs> if, if the therapist immediately goes, you're right, they were giving you side eye. You, mm. you are always correct. Your perception is always reality. Then, yeah, like yeah. You've, got, you've got a lot to worry about. Does that make sense? No, it does. And I think the um, – it's funny because it, you, you use it. It's a whole um, – not industry, but it's, it, it's a whole uh, field of study, the cognitive behavioral therapy, which I think we – like I remember my parents saying things like, you know, just – uh, uh, mind what mind your perspective like it all depends on on the way that you react and respond to something um and i think those that's a good way to do it i think i'll, I'll play devil's advocate a little bit i think i wonder if the whole era of i think that the era of uh trigger warnings came out of a, a reckoning of uh cultural and societal ills um on 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 maybe a little bit of a pendulum recognizing the very real role that um that I think societally ignored sexual violence has has played, and it's a it's it's a, a a tragic reality that's been the case for all of human civilization. But I think there's a there's a certain amount of awareness um, that that drove that, and I think that it, I think the devil's advocacy part would be, well, what's the difference between like perception about the way someone looks at you or the way someone's behaving? And you react to it when it doesn't actually affect you, versus very real traumatic experiences that 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 do affect you. And this, I honestly don't really know where you would draw that line of like how to respond uh, in a you know uh, whether you think it through the lens of stoicism or you think it through the more te- technically speaking cognitive behavioral behavioral therapy. I like I'm not really sure where. Um, where that difference lies or if there is a difference between legitimate actual real um trauma that's experienced 
versus perceived trauma and, and what the overlap okay. is. Well, then I mean, let's, let's kind of take this out of the realm of higher education and the safety of the classroom where you're, where <laughs> you're dealing, where you're dealing with 20 year old feminists and, and all this stuff, uh, you know, expressing fear and, and harm done to them by like a movie that's being played in class. Uh, you have military experience uh, mm -hmm. and have seen some stuff. Uh, I don't want to like drag you into storytelling about <laughs> traumatic, <laughs> traumatic experiences. So, so this is it, right? Yeah. Like, I'm even, I'm even like prefacing right now. Like I'm asking you to like tell me some more <laughs> stories, and I'm like, well, I don't want to drag you to a, the dark place, and, and then Riley like freaks out on the call and it would be i mean it would be great for the podcast you know this early on to really try to get some views and subscribers yeah um, well, so but but so like and and to again preface this uh you know she talks in the article to a couple of ptsd specialists and in in this discussion with one of the 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 physicians um shali john she talks a little bit about her experience working with uh, military servicemen and women and that they have had different approaches in the military of dealing with bad stuff that happens. And, you know, there's one way to look at the things that you experience in service, which is um, this is the job. This is what we do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these experiences round you out, make you stronger. You can become more resilient. Yeah by doing these things uh, versus going into it with the belief that this is chipping away at your very being. Every, mm. every person you kill, like we talked about with Tom Hanks and Saving Private Ryan, uh, every you know pull the trigger makes you weaker, not stronger. Yeah. Uh, I, I have no basis to discuss this. So like, what is, what is your- <laughs> I don't have a lot, experience? but I have a little. Because, and maybe, maybe I am the perfect example because I am much, much more on when I'm talking about the um, uh, practical measurable experiences that happen to you versus perception. Uh, one of my backgrounds, one of my first jobs, actually my very first job, uh, active duty, was uh, supporting uh, the MQ-9 mission set. So uh, colloquially in the movies, they're known, you know, they're the death drones. You know, it's really a, a intelligence and surveillance asset primarily, but essentially it's eyes in the sky type of uh, operations. But it's the strangest career field and it's it's been around for a while. If you ever watch the, um, the Amazon show, what is it with the... Jim from the office, Jack Ryan, the, Jack Ryan yeah. the first season has an entire subplot actually about, um, about, uh, MQ nine operations. They actually, I don't know how they get probably some kind of agreement with the air force and they shot it at Creech air force base, uh, outside of Las Vegas. And it's, it's, it's not perfectly accurate. There's a lot of inaccuracies if you've actually worked in the MQ nine uh, community, but it's pretty dang close. And if you watch that, you know, that it's that, strange cognitive dissonance of uh watching warfare across the across the world through satellite connection and literally when you're uh working this job you're sitting in an operations center where uh you depending on how many assets you have in the air you just have giant video screens it's not nearly as technical and cool as the air force recruiting commercials make it where it looks like this star trek operations center usually it's a little more broken down than that but it is that strange like you're you're literally seeing warfare uh, across the screens. Now, granted, most of the time it's really boring, and you're like staring at a building, building freight. So hours. you've you've seen you've seen 
people die. Yes, yes. So that mm -hmm. long story short is that like the primary mission sets we were doing was was Overwatch type missions in Afghanistan. Um, before certain events changed that very quickly, um, but so that but that was my experience. So as an intelligence guy, I'm just a nerd at a desk researching stuff, right? Uh, that's really my job. Um, and, and and but for the pilots, especially who fly who fly these things, who stare at th who stare at uh, who stare for hours, the sensor operators who are literally operating a camera, and that's your job is 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 for hours and hours and hours on end, whatever the uh, commander needs watch on that's what you're watching you have no choice right that's it's a strange profession um but one that i think i, I generally believed in and i think over the years there's a, there's a lot of controversy about rules of engagement new york times actually did this huge investigation of the overall kind of enterprise of drone warfare that i thought was really well done and had some very legitimate critiques um, maybe not recognizing, I think the evolution as we've improved are the way that we handle rules of engagement, and there's a little bit better oversight now. But some of the stereotypes are true. So that's me. That's kind of my meandering way of saying my experience was I, I, I saw people handle that job, whether pilots or sensor operators or intelligence analysts, very differently depending on their experience and perspective. Um, and I and I think it's I think it's absolutely true that. Um, your perception of your role makes the difference between your ability to um, to be resilient and and push forward and make a difference or not. And and I think one that that first perception, I think you can kind of go too far on either end. You have, I think, in the early days, especially of drone warfare, the bleeding blue death from above kind of guys which they're, they're out there kind of had and to shut so off you're talking about like the people who like to sit around and like eat cheetos and like <laughs> and like game gamify like yeah and that drones. was a like, very <laughs> real thing in the community and i think over time um usually the guys who had more experience uh they would be the ones who who could actually um sit down and say this is this is real warfare this even though you're uh, through the wonders of satellite technology, operating drones from thousands of miles away, uh, it's very real. And I think um, I, I, I think anyone, no matter your perspective, who supports those kinds of operations recognizes that over time. And that's when you have that chance to choose how how you deal with it. At which point, I am actually of the p opinion that it's exactly the same way that you have to address dealing an actual real deployment where you are flying uh quote unquote real pilots mk9 pilots hate it when you say that but you know <laughs> driving the actual jets where they're in the air and uh deploying out to the desert uh, and having to do it so i think that was sort of my background experience but i i really um i i think my experience was pretty positive compared to a lot. A lot of people really, really struggle with this kind of work. And I, and I really, and I didn't. And I think part of it was I, I had a great commander. Um, the task force we supported had clear objectives and rules of engagement that were followed. There was a sense of, uh, you know, of the, of LOAC, the law of armed conflict, like we follow it and we follow the same rules of engagement, whether you're piloting from, uh, a base stateside or whether you're piloting uh, on the ground deploying from the desert but that wasn't always the case and I think I almost benefited in the you know in the time when I started my active duty experience where the uh, 
I think the correction, if not overcorrection, was happening. And I, it, it, it's, it's tough, but by the time we were getting out of Afghanistan, uh, the, the types of Overwatch missions um, were the difference between saving hundreds, if not thousands of lives in those. In those. And, you know, everyone knows about the, the final, and this is, about, this is about as close as I'll get to talking about real world operations, because usually in my job, I very, very much have to like sanitize everything I say, which for good reason, because my perspective is not the DOD's perspective. This is just Riley's opinion. But I think the important thing to recognize with the role of uh, the MQ-9 and, and, and Overwatch in general is like there were not just weeks uh, of the, the final controversial, very political exit from Afghanistan, but there were months leading up to that of operations where things were going downhill and many, many people knew it. Maybe not the American public, uh, but there was a very clear and real job to get out of there without uh, hundreds and thousands of Americans dying. And and that was accomplished. Like there's a lot of there's you can talk about everything else, which is very unfortunately, I think the general dialogue about the American public uh, was at that level on the like controversial political decisions. But meanwhile, on the ground, um, or, you know, in the air via satellite, uh, there were some really heroic and, and I think really important overwatch missions. So I, I illustrate that because I think my perspective kind of embraced the, like these, these are the missions we have now, and this is not a cursed asset. This is not a death drone. You know, this is not the stereotype that Hollywood has anymore. We have a role to play if, if not to prove that uh, remotely piloted operations can have a very real uh, role in protecting Americans. And so that's, I was able to, I, I, my perspective was more on the, the operational level decision-making because I could have gotten like, and I, and I know many service members who do for very understandable reasons. Cause listen, I've never deployed to Afghanistan uh, and I know well, plenty of guys who did. Um, so I understand that that perspective, that frustration would be there. But I think for, for me, I just had to focus on, our role and the, at the operational level mission of what our job was. And that's how I found satisfaction. And that's how I kind of balanced my perspective of, you know, some of the horrible things you have to see on screens in this job. So I can imagine there's a huge difference in the, the service member who comes into work every day, who thinks about themselves as a guardian angel versus one who's been reading the New York Times coverage, and they think about themselves as, a, as an angel of death. Mm. And if you have, you've been reading the comments, like you've been reading the think pieces on drone warfare, and you have internalized, I am this or I am that, that is going to shape the way your day mm. is like, and the kind of dreams that you have, all of this kind of stuff. Yeah. What is your role? Are you a bringer of hellfire and death, or are you protecting others? Yeah. That I mean that that changes everything. Now, of course, like warfare in different contexts are different. Like we have a long history in cinema and entertainment of telling stories about uh, people who come out of the military and then they're dealing with the trauma afterwards and sort of, you know, they see like a kid with like a play gun on the street and they're immediately back in Afghanistan and afraid that they're going to get shot, they hear an explosion, all that kind of stuff. And that's a real valuable recognition of the fact that when people go into traumatic experiences and, and, you know, war that they see stuff, they do stuff and it follows them. But then what comes next is whether or not they 
receive therapy and care that teaches them that they are actually going to be okay mm. or therapy that tells them like oh actually you're going to you're going to need you know to wear a red flag over the rest over your head <laughs> the rest of your life that says you know nobody make any sounds don't pop any balloons yeah <laughs> like that's kind of the difference between a trigger warning uh way to life versus coping building resilience and yeah. getting stronger i i don't know if that makes sense you know sense, i think the i think that's a great way to succinctly summarize it because that's essentially our uh, i'm gonna hazard a guess steven i don't know if this is your experience that's essentially our parents and grandparents generation you know they were they popularized trigger warnings before trigger warnings were a thing see look at me i'm blaming the older generations here we, here i go um, but no, I, I think the idea of not talking about something, like not talking about a bad experience of like shoving things aside, compartmentalizing, boxing up, like that, that's essentially what, uh, trigger warnings, uh, codified, at least at the like big cultural level. And I think it's one of those great examples of you, sh you should always, um, I'm going to steal this from, I think a friend of yours, one Andrew Heaton said this once and kind of stuck with me. Um, and that is like, you should measure, I think in his case, a policy, but I think, you should measure a person uh, um, or a policy or an organization not by their intention, but by its result. And I, I think the idea of the trigger warning came about from very good intention and from a very real need to very good intentions to yeah. codify how we were going to confront these cultural things that needed confronting at at the time. And and I think so that that's a very natural outcome of the that sort of confrontation we were coming with that reckoning. Yeah. I've I've got a friend, I shared this article on Facebook, probably, you know, against my better judgment. And I've got a friend who I care about very dearly, who, you know, is in the comments section and is like, you know, clearly kind of taking umbrage at, at you know, this suggestion that, uh, you know, that I understand his struggle, you know, that, you know, this art, this article and this idea is all about, you know, trying to stomp on people with anxiety. And I'm, I don't believe that at all. Like, we have to make decisions in society at mm. large about things that are good for individuals so that people feel respected and valued and you know that we have empathy towards them and their experiences versus things that are good for the whole you know the common good which i usually reject as a concept um you know i i tend to believe that there is not a thing that is good for you know the entire society but trigger warnings is like actually one of those those things that presents a difference for me where it mm. comes from a very good place. It might, it might work for a couple of individuals to like navigate through life comfortably, mm -hmm. but that, that comfortably part might be the problem. Um, they don't need to be comfortable. They need to be stronger. Uh, and we, what do we do to help them? What mm. do we do to help those people? And I, I think that this has just been proven at this point to have been counterproductive looking at the results, not the intentions of the policy. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I just want to, I want to cap off here was just that the, the article, um, Filopovic talked to, uh, Martin Siegelman, who's the director of positive psychology at the university of Pennsylvania. And Siegelman has spent 50 years researching resilience. And mm. I'm going to paraphrase the article. One study that he co-authored looked at the U S army to see if there was a way to predict PTSD in servicemen who was oh, going to get it. And unsurprisingly, uh, he and his researchers found a link to the severity of combat to which soldiers were exposed to PTSD. So how severe was their service experience? Um, and they found a link. 
But the the pre-existing disposition that soldiers brought to the battlefield experience was also shown in this research to matter. Mm. If you were a if you were a catastrophizer in the worst ten or twenty percent of their sample, you were more than three times as likely to come down with PTSD after the combat. Siegelman showed in this in this research, and he says that this is true at every level of severity of combat. The percentage goes down, but it's still about twice as high, even with mild combat or no obvious combat. Yeah. So if you come to this experience as the person who worries and panics and, you know, like is afraid of every sound, like, yeah, like you are going to be a little bit more likely to struggle with this. But if you're the person who's like, I've been waiting my whole life for this. Um, you know, I know I'm going to have to do some stuff. It's not going to be great, but you know, I'm going to be stronger and a better serviceman protecting my country for it. I'm not saying that you're always going to be okay, hmm. but the research shows that you're more likely to be okay. Uh, Cause we all, we all know somebody who's been in Iraq or Afghanistan and they went there with a lot of bravado and they came back broken. Um, I think everybody has a person in their life like that. It's just saying you're more likely to have been okay. Yeah, no, that's, that's so true. You know, I, I would, I would give a kitschy uh, Qui-Gon quote, but I feel like it's too serious of a topic, <laughs> but it's true. It's, it's a, it's, it's, it's that perspective is so, so important. And I think it's something you build up over time. Uh, it's not something that you just like uh, in, immediately can, uh, I don't know, uh, take have, on. Have you ever heard the, the term post-traumatic growth? No, I, I honestly had not. No. Mm -mm. So yeah, this is something that Sigelman says as well at, as he's capping off his research. And he says that about as many people who showed PTSD after their service experience also showed a thing that they call post-traumatic growth, uh, which means that they have an awful time during an event, but a year later, they're stronger physically and, and psychologically than they were to begin with. And that's an empowering idea. Mm. Um, I also read something the other week in The Atlantic from Arthur Brooks, a researcher and writer who you and I both really like. And I wrote about this in my book, How the Force Can Fix the World with Free Will mm. and Determinism. And you know, there's there's a debate in in the academy, and I guess I guess on YouTube as well, thanks to like the likes of Sam Harris or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But you know, is do we have free will as individuals, or is everything predetermined? And there are people who believe that we actually don't have choices in life, and that things happen exactly as they are preordained or determined. And they did research on mental health outcomes for people who believe one thing or the other. Determinists have dramatically worse uh, mental health mm. than free will um, adherence. People who really believe that everything that happens in my life, I have a choice. And it, it might be true. And I, I wrote about this in my book. Again, it might be true that in some cases, you don't have a choice. Mm. It was determined for you. Your free will went right out the window. Maybe you never had it to begin with yeah. in a certain circumstance. But it's like a noble lie. If you believe in free will, you cope better. 
<laughs> and isn't isn't that the better outcome? A righteous delusion, if you will. Um, yeah, that's I, listen, the outcome I, you I'm want. On, I'll join. I'll join your team. I I will. I will gladly. I will gladly join that. Well, it's like the old Victor Frankl uh, man's search for meaning uh, concept, which is you don't mm-hmm. have a choice in things in everything that happens to you in life, but. Uh, the and this is a strong free will argument that I very much align with, which is you certainly choose how you respond to it. Um, and I don't mean that in a, in a flippant way, because I think sometimes people bring up that quote as a way of just brushing aside uh, very real personal or maybe societal problems uh, that should be confronted, like where you're born, the fa- uh, and and your family. Um, like things that are outside of your control has a huge impact on your life and you can't control that. Um, but I do think 101. Yeah, but I do think that, that, that controlling of response is, 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 is the, is the key. So yeah. Victor Frankl says, actually, I have a Victor Frankl quote right in front of me. Uh, he wrote, when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. Mm. And he attributed this to Epictetus uh, and his dichotomy of control. Oh, so no Epictetus, Stoic. Yeah. I didn't uh, know Epictetus, Victor Frankl was a Stoic. Look at that. Absolutely. Uh, Victor Frankl attributed this to Epictetus's writings on control. And, you know, Epictetus is a, as a Stoic philosopher and, you know, a, a slave uh, who grew up in slavery, eventually achieved freedom, but lived his life with a, a broken leg and a limp as a result of the slavery. Um, he is the one who popularized, not Marcus Aurelius, what Stoicism was and what it meant. And it was all about determining the things that we have control of over in our lives versus the things that we don't and separating those two things, then focusing your attention on the things that you do have control over. That's what Epictetus wrote. Marcus Aurelius then popularized all those ideas when he was the emperor of Rome. Uh, But that is exactly what I was trying to describe earlier with you know, the perception of someone throwing you side eye on the street. Mm. Um, You know, do you have control over somebody throwing you side eye and glaring at you or running into you shoulder to shoulder and nearly knocking you down on the street? No, you don't have control over that person. But you have a moment, a flash second right there where you decide, how am I going to interpret this? Was it an attack or was it an accident? Mm. And you might be wired to, to, Think one or the other immediately. You might go. Every slight against me is an attack. Mm. And you mentioned you mentioned my daughter. Um, my daughter is now thirteen or about to turn thirteen, mm. and she's starting to model classic teenage behavior. And you know what that is? Everything's an attack. <laughs> you know, like yeah. you say something. You say something nice to them. You you compliment their outfit, and they're like, "What do you really mean by that?" <laughs> but because because the voice they're starting to develop self-consciousness they're mm-hmm. starting to develop self-doubt and when you're a kid most kids are actually like a little bit oblivious to the idea that that you know somebody might yeah you know try to like sink the knife into them you know mm-hmm. and, and you know undercut them in a way and they start to develop self-doubt and so she's now starting to treat friendly remarks as attacks. It's very weird. And I'm Mm. like, honey, you have to remember, I love you. I would never say something intentionally to hurt you ever. Um, and it, it just matters like what you assume of people's actions. Yeah. Well, and it's a good point that that's, it's, it's the strange gift of, you know, 
humanity, our, our blessing and our curse is our ability to like see ourselves, our ability to have self-perception, self-consciousness. And that's what allows us to grow and have relationships in a way that is unique amongst the species of this earth, right? Um, but mm -hmm. at the same time, it, it's, it's, it's the curse of, um, you know, it, it can expand beyond, uh, into a scope where it can actually hurt us as well. So it's, 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 um, I, it's this, it's this beautiful dichotomy that I, that I absolutely love. And I know we're kind of wrapping up the episode here. Steve, I think I just want to say, that I, I appreciate you opening up and probing a little bit, uh, to talk, uh, like real life stuff. I, I really appreciate the conversation and, um, and it's, it's, a you're good the drone pilot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a dad. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just the in, I'm just an Intel nerd. That's that's all I do. <laughs> I um no, I think you know what? Here's a good here's I, I, it's a very real example, and uh, these kinds of things I sometimes feel like it'll it, it comes across to flippant for something very serious, but I think it's right in line with what you're saying. So I'm just going to go for it. I think um, a great way to cap this episode is the perspective that I saw, and I this is this is third and fourth hand. I don't know anyone who was on the ground during the final. Uh, exfiltration of the Hamid Karzai airport in Afghanistan. But it was all over the news. Everybody saw it. But I want to challenge the uh, think about the perspective of the Marines on the ground. Like I said, I don't know. I didn't know any, but I've heard stories second and third hand. Um, and there was a, a three day period where that entire giant, massive civilian airport, the whole flight line, think of JFK or Hartsfield Jackson, or Reagan, I guess, where you are, Stephen, imagine that size of airport and that airfield being overrun in a near Walking Dead or World War Z level thousands of, of human beings. That airport was lost. The war was lost and everyone knew it. Commanders all the way down to the Marine grunts on the ground. And they were told something. They said, there are still hundreds of Americans and thousands of Afghans that we need to try to evacuate. And so the choice of the commanders all the way down at that point was a perspective choice because they, it could have been like, no, uh, no, it's, look at the thousand, the entire airport is gone. There's no one in the air traffic control tower. There's no way to make this happen. And yet, uh, specifically the Marines on the ground somehow cleared that entire airfield. And there's videos. You guys have seen the videos of the C-17s. Um, and, and they had to believe that they could still make a difference in the midst of an American public that was caught up in the politics of red versus blue at the time, which is a very tragic reality of where we are as a country, but that's an aside. So that perspective, that was their opportunity to say, no, I can still make a difference. And our job here <laughs> is to clear the entire massive airfield, hold a security perimeter um, with a government that's completely collapsed. Uh, it's never been done before. It's the largest airlift since Berlin, and it was done in the midst of a collapsed government um, with thousands of hostiles uh, in the area. And, and, you know, it's, it's, there's tragic elements. There were people who died on the ground, uh, but it's a miracle of accomplishment that couldn't have been done if you had, if you had the perspective of, well, it's over, I've, we've lost. Um, and that's a very important, I think, part with that whenever I have a conversation about um, the, the and I think it's going to come up again in the political cycle right now uh, as we get into the 2024 campaign. I would I would much rather talk about that, the operational success, the forging some glimmer of of hope and rescue out of a horrible situation. Uh, and and that's the perspective I choose to have on it because man, if it for especially for the poor guys who I know deploy once, two, three, four times 
it, it, it could feel hopeless and lost. Like, what was it all for? Um, but there are those small uh, victories where you can make a difference. And, and those guys who could did. And I still, to this day, man, I, I have no idea how that operation was, was succeeded. I don't know how you clear an airport of that size. And I, man, I wish that um, politicians and public figures would focus on that miracle of the, of, of the exit after it was all lost. So that's my little, I, that's a little rant that I give all the time to like my friends. So I've never really talked about it publicly, but I thought that would be a good way to maybe challenge us to think about a perspective and our ability to change what we can and, and maybe not fret about what we can't. Hmm. Well, I know you wanted to wrap the episode up, and now, now I want to now I want to talk about the the political discourse. Over this. <laughs> I know this is the shift from this is where we we can drift back into the Beltway Banthas world. This uh, was this was in the news this week. Yeah. Know? Oh yeah. I, um, I haven't been following it too much. I, I th- feel like I've seen some some conversation of Afghanistan slipping back into the the public consciousness, but yeah. Well, I don't know. I'll I'll, I'll keep it brief because I, I think what you. You mentioned there, and, and you can cut this out if this doesn't, you know, work in the the broader scope of the episode. Listen, man, there's no rules, but yeah, yeah, this is YouTube, <laughs> yeah, anarchy. <that's> right. <laughs> there's that's no right. rules we have here. No, we have no producer in our ear being like, "Sorry, gotta that was uh, gotta cut to commercial." No. So, so gold gold star families were on the hill testifying this past week. Oh, that's right. Um, I've, yeah. From mm. from the airport uh, suicide bombing and was thirteen, yeah. thirteen They're men and women who who died. Uh, and so they were testifying on the Hill and they were all kind of brought in to talk about, you know, or, or ask, how did this happen? Why did this happen? And the 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 challenge was to the Biden administration to explain how this was allowed to happen mm. and to answer for in, in this context, right, the, con- the context of the conservatives and the Republicans on the Hill who kind of want to stick it to the Biden administration to explain yeah. this failure and why. Uh, these men and women died. And, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. Uh, But that is like a, that's a national narrative that is looking at the withdrawal purely as a defeat, Mm -hmm. as our lowest moment. Yeah. And the Biden administration narrative has been to stick to what you're talking about, which is this was an operational huge success like what was accomplished was was unheard of and and it should have been impossible and people did die so it wasn't perfect um but it's it's remarkable and you can either pick that story right you can pick the story of America being founded in 1776 on freedom and believe that that's who we are, or you can embrace, uh, you know, America was founded on slavery, right? It changes your entire perspective of where you're mm. living. And that framing of was the Afghanistan withdrawal uh, a catastrophe or a pretty remarkable success for our military? I mean, it changes everything. That's the about ultimate the question, right? And it's so yeah. charged politically now. But like, mm-hmm. I guess what I was offering is, and and maybe if you're a lot, if you are one of those uh, who is watching those hearings and you're you're waiting for justice, very understandably, um, maybe it's there's not going to be justice. Yeah, there's, <laughs> I mean, there's no justice. I, yeah. I, I, it's you don't know what to say. Like, we've we were in Afghanistan for 20 years, yeah. um, and and leaving still resulted in a loss of life there's there's not going to be justice unless we go right back um and it's it's frustrating but you know it's the perception part you know do you want to believe that your your children died for something 
yeah, which was the final act of bringing an end to 20 years of war, which could be a heroic story sure. that you tell yourself. Yeah. This is, this is, again, I can't imagine losing, losing your loved ones sure. over there. But if you choose to tell yourself the story, my son or daughter died in the last ditch effort to save innocent lives in Afghanistan and bring about in an end to 20 years of war. That's a hero story. Yeah. Or there's the victim story, which is a weak, inept president and, you know, Joe Biden bungled a withdrawal from Afghanistan and my child was caught up in it unprepared and they, they died tragically in an airport. Hmm. Um, those are two different stories. And one is going to give you solace and one is going to keep you up at night and probably fill you with anger and resentment uh, for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, and I am not making a judgment on which one is correct because I don't know. Well, uh, as, <laughs> as you know, a, a guy involved in it in some way, um, he there can be there can be a manner and a, there is a degree of truth in both of those uh, stories. There can be a degree of truth in 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 all of those events that actually happened. But you're so right the the story that you choose to focus on will make all the difference. And I hope, um, whether it's the Gold Star families, which I think for very good reasons rise above any any criticism, maybe they give us an opportunity in how, how they respond to it um, to think about how how we think of, of, of these kinds of events. And maybe if you're, I, I'll put this challenge, if you're aligned more politically uh, on the conservative side, if, you, if, if, if you're... Uh, you know, understandable outrage on certain political decisions that happened is is there. Maybe the healthier thing is to uh, understand that, embrace that, not necessarily ignore, or say it's not true if it is um, your core beliefs about uh, that that side of it. But maybe maybe be challenged to accept the the heroic portions of the narrative that are true objectively uh, as well. So this might be a great opportunity to do a follow-up episode on myth uh, <laughs> and why, why myth matters yeah. in our culture. The stories we tell ourselves it frames everything yeah. and the stories might not be true, right? <laughs> no, that's, uh, but, yeah. but the idea, the idea is what is good for us. Do we, <laughs> do we want to live? We, do we want to live against the backdrop of a myth in which we're the villains and the the worst people in the world, parasites on the earth, or where we are heroes, stewards of the earth, good people? Um, I, you know, I like I like truth. I'm a big fan yeah. of truth, but I'm also a really big fan of people not hating themselves <laughs> and it's having so good mental health. <laughs> No, and you're. It's so funny that because we literally, when we spent uh, probably too long, we spent months kind of building out the idea of this show, the 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 fallout of the collapse of uh, Beltway Banthas and Star Wars Report. We're like, so how do we want to talk about these stories? And and it's the the kitschy, almost buzzwordy ways that we wanted to codify of like these stories affect our very real life, like our whole perspective, our worldview is defined by the lens through which we we view and that's why i was talking earlier like it feels weird giving a kitschy qui-gon quote but it's it's based on the very whether you go to epictetus or whether you go to uh victor frankel uh like these philosophies already go to the to qui-gon jinn these philosophies of 
uh, your perspective making all the difference uh, is just a, a fundamental truth of the uh, the world we have to exist in as human beings. Marcus, Marcus Aurelius, choose not to be harmed and you won't feel harmed. Don't feel harmed and you haven't been. Mm. Um, you know, I sticks and stones may break <laughs> my bones. Like this is this is where we get these kind of little bits of wisdom from. And yeah, I I guess just to wrap it up, you know, good intentions uh, are admirable, especially when you're trying to make people feel comfortable and safe. Uh, but what makes people feel stronger? I think the evidence. The evidence is on the side of sometimes these noble lies about how we make people feel stronger. And it might just be that you're like inflating them, you know, like a, a bicycle tire. But if that carries them through life more mm -hmm. effectively, I think that's what you do. Yeah. That's the element of, 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 of spiritual truth. Like, um, like we are, it's, it's that luminous beings quote from empire strikes back, but we are, we're, we're, we're humans are spiritual creatures and, uh, we, we don't, we are not limited to our experience of this life simply through the lens of, uh, our, these fleshy sacks of, uh, of, mm -hmm. of physical reality that we're bound by. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's just, fundamentally important to recognize um when we when we talk about the importance of perspective so yeah steve i've you know i have nothing else I've, i'm out of profound insight i am uh, <laughs> i think well, i think we uh, uh this is definitely by far the the deepest uh conversation i've ever had on a podcast that's for sure i'm used to like have you seen the new ah ahsoka tv spot it looks <laughs> oh my gosh looks so great look at sabine's hair <laughs> I saw your tweet about the discourse on Sabine's hair, and I was like, "That's so true." Oh yeah, no, people are gonna lose their shit. Oh, the purple-haired social justice warrior. I'm like, "Oh, come on, please." You know, this per <laughs> that's the perspective of you know how the realm of politics has has infiltrated uh, the world of Star Wars so much. Yeah. Um, and oh, then, I, yeah, it's, it's what people are gonna see yeah. uh, immediately, and yeah. I'm gonna go, "But it's from the animated series," and they're gonna go, "Shut up, nerd." <laughs> That's so true. That's so true. Oh, all, right. all right. That's going to wrap up this episode of Walk the Way. Here's what you want to do. If you uh, enjoy this podcast, please share it with a friend. You can find all of the links at walktheway.buzzsprout.com. This is episode seven. Uh, I think the uh, you can find Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere where you listen to the show. Uh, please, please. This is, you know, all the podcasters say this, but they say it for a reason rate and review it really helps the show um you know the other thing is if you're a youtube uh guy or gal please uh head over to our youtube page it's for just walk the way search walk the way on youtube you'll find the show we post the you know steven i've been impressed you've been sort of our video guy and you've been posting full video episodes uh as well as kind of key clips and highlights on the youtube and some of our social media so i appreciate that because i know sometimes the the podcast itself uh, it's it's easy to get buried in the world unless you're already subscribed um so if you're here and listening to the show after uh after discovering some of the clips steven's been posting uh we appreciate it make sure you subscribe and share the show uh steven tell the good people where they can find you on the internet and what's coming up for this is the way yeah you can find me on twitter at steven underscore kent eight nine uh, and yeah, just follow us on YouTube at Walk the Way. We'd love to love to have you aboard. 
Deal, deal. I'm messing around with the fancy StreamYard overlays now. <laughs> like, ooh, like, like, ooh really, really sophisticated. Wow. Uh, and yeah, you know, all of this, all of this lives on thisistheway.substack.com. Yes. So much of what we discuss here is written out in in long form on This Is The Way. And we'd love if you became a subscriber. It's the beating heart of this show and what we do. So if you really want to join that community and be part of it, that starts with just being a free subscriber to the newsletter. So this is the way.substack.com. There it is. There it is. Uh, yep. And then a parting shot, you can follow me on, on Twitter it's, or on X at the Riley guy, R-I-L-E-Y. That's where you can find me. Um, and until next time, just remember... Your focus determines your reality. Uh, that is a show, my friend. Whew. That's just wonderful. I'm exhausted. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's good stuff.